0: Glory to the labor, comrades, and welcome to the Cabinet of Fever Dreams. Tonight, the sixth chapter of Journals from the Institute. This novella was originally released December of 2021 and is read to you tonight by yours truly, with musical backing by The Dark Side of Music and Miu. This tale belongs to the United People's Institute of Science series. If you'd like to hear more about the Institute, make sure to check out the past few episodes and tune in for future chapters of the novella. New episodes come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. With all that said, prepare your documents. We're heading to a darker time. May 6th, 1988. When I first woke, I was certain that I was in the middle of an earthquake. Being prematurely brought out of sleep with the medicine still in my veins had all the makings of a seizure, but by the time I calmed my nervous limbs, I recognized the sound coming out of the abyss. It was the middle of the night, and someone was knocking on my door. Their fist had the ferocity of a jackhammer. Beyond the blinding lights of the hallway, I could see the scarred-up face of a Soviet soldier. The United People's Institute of Science did not require my attendance today, the man barked. Air ducts were being fumed for vermin and all of the research staff was ordered to stay inside of the Rusalka until the situation was resolved. The soldier didn't wait for a response, he simply moved on to my neighbor's door and started pounding it. Past the hallway, I could hear the gruff voices of his comrades repeating the same message to my colleagues. My mind was still half asleep. The slow drip of calmness from a sudden day off overshadowed any absurdity of the institute being closed down. It wasn't until my head was rested on the pillow that the realization gripped me. The tenor of science being done at the institute was far too important to be halted for something as trivial as the cleaning of air vents. Something had gone wrong. The realization of foul play was quickly followed by the realization of my impotence. There was nothing that I could do. As terrifying as the prospect of something going wrong at the United People's Institute of Science was, the question was fully out of my purview. My responsibilities in the institute were wholly centered on real XO422. I was not to get involved in any unrelated matters. First I tried going back to sleep. Then, I briefly considered an early dose of the syringe, but finally I settled down at my desk with some spare paper. To take my mind off of whatever was happening in the halls of the institute, I drew. At first my pencil only produced mechanical shapes to the tune of a nervous internal monologue, but soon enough, I found my body relaxing, my mind cleared, I started drawing faces on the shapes. For a moment, I completely forgot about Adam Bernofsky and the film reel and the institute. My hands were too busy crafting cartoons on a page to let my mind stress about my predicament. It was the same feeling that the syringes provided, but without the nausea or vertigo. Everything was fine. For a moment, I fantasized about the life I could have had if I stayed away from the realm of science. The sharp morning light slowly dispelled those fantasies. Without the wail of the hotel's siren, I had lost track of time. The sun was up. Somewhere beyond the blocks of cement housing, the Institute stood. The anxiety quickly rushed back. Not being able to sit still, I descended to the lobby of the Rusalka. A small crowd of soldiers milled around at the brutalist entryway of the hotel. The moment I climbed out of the elevator, their loud conversation quieted down. The young man silently smoked and watched me as if I were a foreign spy. I made my way across the lobby as inconspicuously as I could. The question of why the soldiers were in the hotel to begin with didn't linger for long. There was a state security bulletin poster right next to the communal coffee pot and the front desk, and each pillar that stood in the Rusalkas foyer. Tired, sunken eyes stared at me from the paper. The face was more than familiar. Anna Brnofsky, dangerous enemy of the people. Shoot on sight. The syringes haven't helped the least bit. I've spent hours lying on the bed with my blood full of sedatives hoping to fall asleep, hoping to avoid any further thought of what happens if Brnofsky's diagrams fall into wrong hands. Yet my mind refuses to relax. If the man truly escaped the Institute, if he was able to reveal even a fraction of the dark science that he has studied. There is no way the technology can be contained. The terror of another nation, hell, even of the Soviets getting access to their dangerous properties, of real x 422 are unthinkable. But my anguish is fortified by the realization that it is my fault. Dr. Herkel wanted to get rid of Brnovsky immediately. When I insisted on keeping the man alive, he relented, but day after day he gave me a chance to rectify my mistake. Yet I was sentimental, and I let the man live. I was sentimental and now I am responsible for the carnage that is to come if Branovsky is not captured. May 7th, 1988 It is as I feared. Yesterday's fumigation of the air ducts did nothing but slow essential research. Branovsky had made his escape through the ventilation of the institute. By the time the poison was pumped in, he was long gone. The man who possesses the knowledge to destroy humanity is unaccounted for and I am to blame. The pen. It was the pen that I left with him that he used to unscrew the covers of the air duct. No one has confirmed it and obviously I haven't directly asked, but deep in my heart I am certain I am to blame for Bronowski's escape. I spent most of the workday inside of my lab, studying the diagrams that my predecessor had scratched out weeks prior. There was the gentlest hint of something chemical in the air. Something foul that made my stomach uneasy, but I still managed to make a fair amount of progress in bringing Bernovsky's blueprints into reality. For a moment, my hopelessness relented. The maddened scientist was still unaccounted for, but any progress in understanding of the horrible science I was tasked with lifted my mood. The contentment did not last long, however. When I entered the Rusalka, the old receptionist took quick notice of me. I hadn't even taken off my coat when I heard him knocking at my door. The poor man was distraught. He held a state security bulletin in his hand, but kept it away from his body as if it were toxic sludge. Without glancing at the paper, the old man recited all of the crimes that Adam Bernovsky was accused of. He asked me if the accusations were true, if even a shred of what was being said about the artist could be believed. I knew full well that the crimes that Bernovsky was charged with had no basis in reality but rather served as a motivator for him being captured. Yet I knew I could not tell the hotel clerk that. I knew that knowing the truth would put the old man in danger, so instead I bit down on any semblance of empathy and spoke about how the worst of us carry our sins in complete secret. The old man's heart slowly broke with each word that I uttered. Finally, when he accepted that the artist he once admired was a monster, he spoke. There were some art supplies he had kept for his friend's unlikely return. He no longer had any interest in storing them. With the easels and the paint and the charcoal, my room is considerably more cramped now. Even in my exhaustion, however, I can still produce a little bit of joy from being given the tools to express myself. There is nothing else for me to do. There is no way that I can affect the impending disaster that bernowski's fate revolves around. All I can do now is draw. All I can do now is draw and hope that tomorrow will bring better news. May 9th 1988 Back in university, when the nights were long and the air felt thick, my colleagues would talk of the borders. There were stories, never truly confirmed, of men sneaking west through the cover of night. They made their way through the barbed wire fences, past the men with rifles and canine patrols. They crawled their way through the two kilometers that made up the physical manifestation of the Iron Curtain. Out in the darkness. On the western side of the dead earth, they would find a lit up shack. Inside of it, they would find friendly faces. The soldiers spoke in German, or in English, or if the defector couldn't speak neither, a translator would be provided. A Lucky Strike cigarette, a dark roast coffee. The defector would be welcomed into a free world in true style. After paperwork was finished, and a life free of the boot of totalitarianism was just a stone's throw away, the soldiers would ask questions. Are you aware of any human rights violations happening in your country? Is there anyone else that you know who is suffering? Please, tell us everything you know. We have men in the shadows who can help. They just need to be told where to go." The defectors would talk. Who would, after all, leave behind their family? Who would force their friends to trudge through the same dead earth and dangers as they did? If others could be helped to escape, or better yet, they could help topple the system, it would be a crime not to speak. The defectors told the soldiers everything that they knew and the soldiers smiled. The soldiers smiled and, when the defectors finished speaking, they took out the handcuffs. I never believed in fake borders. They seemed needlessly cruel and expensive to upkeep. Thank God the Soviet Union is more cruel than I could imagine. Adam Bernovsky has been caught on the border to China. He's back in Soviet custody. Thank God that the guerrillas the Border Patrol employs don't have the slightest insight about the world of science. Pernovsky spoke at length about the nature of the research he has done at the United People's Institute of Science. He sketched diagrams of machines that could destroy modern man. He provided detailed instructions on how to bring the horrors of my lab to life. Yet the border guards were deaf to the horrid knowledge he was sharing. It was not their job to understand. Their job was to smile write down what the defector said, and then snap on the handcuffs. Dr. Herkel managed to have all records of Adam Bernowski's capture destroyed. He has also managed to have Brnofsky transported directly back into the Institute before the broken scientist would have a chance to speak to someone of actual authority. Adam Bernowski however, has not been executed. The problem of an unreliable man possessing destructive knowledge could have easily been solved with a single bullet. But killing a man purely because of the sin of accepting a position within the Institute would break me. From my conversations with Dr. Herkel, I am pretty certain the idea of killing Bernofsky repulsed him as well. He is just far too reserved to express it. I suggested an alternative. I am unsure whether this alternative is a better or worse faith than death, but I have to believe I did the right thing. Ever since his escape, I have been working on the machine. Based off of the diagrams that Bernovsky drew for me while he was in the institute's custody, I've created a photographic apparatus that can replicate the effects of real XO-422. When Bernovsky was captured at the border, the machine was not yet tested, but I knew that Herkel wouldn't leave space for another mistake. Anon Bernovsky was destined for one of two fates. Either he was to be the first test subject of the forbidden technology I had unearthed, or he was to be shot dead in the holding cells of the institute. I chose the former hoping I was not consigning the man to a life worse than death. My plan existed purely within the realm of speculation prior to Brnofsky's capture, yet when the opportunity came, I had to act quickly. The canvas and paints the elderly receptionist gave to me, a tranquil part of the forest that surrounded the institute, and the interlaced machine of lens and film I had designed. That was all I needed to make the holding cell for the scientist who could undo humanity. With little time to spare, I made a recording, of the woods and the art supplies that would serve as Bernowski's eternal dungeon. Once the footage had been processed, Bernowski was taken to my lab, strapped down into the viewing chair and forced to watch the projection. His mind was dulled by tranquilizers given to him to prevent another escape, yet he seemed to be aware of what he was watching. He kept his eyes locked on the projection, unblinkingly accepting his fate. From behind my protective goggles, I could see the man's body shift in and out of reality in shimmers of bright static. For a minute or so, the man defied all laws of physics, and then he was gone. Real XO501. That is the designation of Brnovsky's new home. The first few times I've played the tape, all that I could see was a man battered by life trying to make sense of the perplexing universe before him. Bernovsky simply stood in front of the easel, looking beyond the trees and the sun and sky. Slowly, play by play, the man's place in the footage changed. Each time I reversed the footage, he was closer and closer to the easel. By the time I left the Institute, Bernovsky no longer seemed confused by where he was. By the time I left the Institute, Brnofsky was painting. He was drawing a landscape in the midst of a horrid storm lightning and sleet covered the canvas in apocalyptic strength. His art inspires gut-wrenching fear in me, a certainty that something will go horribly wrong terribly soon, yet I hope, I pray, that Adam Bronowski is happier inside of the tape of my creation than he was in the company of the shaman. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L., Lucky J. Horton, Alan Rall, Kuss, Bob Condor, Chicken Mixer, Daniel Wengel, and Mr. Pasta. If you'd like to join these fine folks in supporting the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Mike J. Langer. That's all for tonight, comrade. See you here next episode for another chapter of The Journals from the Institute. Glory to Labour.